All right. Let's pray and get, get rolling. Although, I, I, I've said this before, I think. We should just one day just come in and let you can all have a conversation amongst yourselves for an hour. Because it sounds like you're having a really nice, a really nice chat. So, keep, don't, I'm sorry to interrupt that. But let's, we'll talk about the Bible for a bit and then you can chat some more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for humbling yourself and taking on human flesh and dwelling among us. We pray that you would always guide us to your presence where you may be found in the sacrament and in your word. Fill our hearts with a love of your goodness and a desire to do your will. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Do you have any questions? Any questions? Okay. So we're going to talk, the theme for today, um, Pastor Nelson, I think, talked about this a bit last week, about consent, which, uh, you know, is a relevant topic nowadays because of all the news, of course. Um, but, it's, but here's the thing I want you to come away with, is that it's, it's actually not just relevant in the sense that it helps us understand what's going on in the world, but talking about consent, understanding consent in a broader context is actually to talk about faith, okay? So when, we, when we're talking about consent in, say, a sexual relationship, you can, just as we can with Song of Songs, sort of back up and see this as a picture of God's relationship to his church, to you. When we talk about consent, we're doing the very same thing. So by the end, I want you to sort of be able to think of consent and faith as synonyms in some way, okay? But first, we're going to look at uh, some artwork, uh, so I read, we read Mary's, uh, the Annunciation in chapel this morning, um, and I have for you three paintings of the Annunciation. There is just, I mean, I, we could just do paintings of the Annunciation. They're fantastic. Take a look at this first one. This is one of my favorites, Fra Angelico from the 15th century. Um, what do you notice? What do you see? Yes, thank you. So you have to get that. So isn't that what, what a theologian, right? This is what we discover about so many of these painters is that they were not just great artistic minds, but that they were theologians as well. So you have Adam and Eve in the background leaving the garden. There's the angel there casting them out, right? Look at how lush that garden is. It's, um, it's, it, 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 you get a full sense of the paradise that they were leaving, right? And their sorrow. You can see their sorrow and the fruit at their feet, right? They can't, t- so, I mean, think about what that conveys, right? They ate the fruit and then they just discard it. They, it didn't, it's not doing for them what they expected or hoped it would do, okay? What else do you see? No color right now. Yeah, that's right. That's a great observation. I hadn't, I hadn't made that observation. There's no color. Adam and Eve are drained of color. Yeah, good. There's something in that gray there. So, right here, you mean? It's a dove. Yep. Good. Good, very good. And uh, so, follow that ray back up to the corner, and you've got some hands. It's hard to see them. Some hands up in the corner. The, yep, uh, the top left. Sending the dove. So, now... It, yeah. I, I think that might be God the Father, but I'm not sure. We'll, we'll leave it open to interpretation. Um, yeah. 
I don't know. I wondered, that, I wondered exactly the same thing. That's a, it's obviously a particular kind of bird, right? Um, I'd like to know. Maybe it's just to make it more like normal. Just normal. Considering how the rest of it is not very normal, right? Yeah. Yeah. What else, what else do you see? You, all, you also have it in front on your, on your handouts there, too, if you want to look closer. I, I, it's, it's so hard to... Well, okay. I will zoom in also, but where where should I zoom in? Uh, under the bench. This, that almost looks like a tomb, but it's... Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. In the next room. Yeah. So I was wondering if that was... A- yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the building that she's in is peculiar, right? Yeah. Okay. Holly. Um, what Mary is sitting on almost looks like a throne. It does. Yep. Good. She does. She's very pious. She has a book on her lap. Yeah, Elizabeth. A dead lamb under the angel. Hmm. I don't see it. Hmm. Hmm. Um. We'd have to. We'd have. Someday we'll take a trip and go see these. Paintings, right? Because I mean, there, there can be no substitute. Obviously, no substitute for seeing this in person. Um, they are fascinating. That's right. Yeah. So a posture of humility, right? Um, I don't. Know, I don't know if there's any significance to this gesture besides just, you know, um, it's non-threatening, right? It's a it's a welcoming kind of a gesture, a humbling kind of a gesture. Um, yes, but is this in one of the churches over in Italy somewhere? It's in Italy, yep. Um, I've seen this. The, so now, the, Fra Angelico has several renditions of this in churches throughout, throughout Europe, actually. Um, and it's almost as tall as I am. It's very big, yep. Yeah, which also then gives you, I mean, so th- I, I'm fascinated by the strangeness of the building that she's in. If Mary stood up, she would hit her head on the ceiling, right? So I think that there's supposed to be some sort of like, I mean, we're supposed to be sort of overwhelmed by the perspective of it. And then look at the ceiling. I mean, this is what, if we could paint the ceiling in the sanctuary, right? Yeah. With the stars, really cool. It's a, it's a, a blue, blue garment. Yes. It's on the feet of heaven. That's right, yep, yep. These aren't the normal angel wings that we see in other paintings either. Right. And I wish I I would have shown you, if I had more time, I'd show you the other one by Fra Angelico nearby has an angel with really radiant rainbow-colored wings. I mean, spectacular. The wings, your eyes are attracted to them. Um, Really, a lot of imagination went into painting those wings. I think so. I mean, I think if you look at the color of the garment, right, and the hair. Yep, and the wings. Yes. That's exactly right. Yes, and so many, so many paintings of the Annunciation captured that precisely. You get this direct line. Um, in many, in many cases, it's not a beam. It's just a a singular golden line going straight to her ear. Really cool. Really cool to see. Okay, uh, another, one other thing to note on the bottom 
if we, we could look more closely, at, you have other scenes from the life of Mary, um, which is, uh, there's other interesting things to note there. Take a look at the next one. Uh, this guy, boy, this didn't come out so well on the screen at all. It's really dark. So look. Right. This is Tintoretto from the 16th century. Um, he has, well, he does all kinds of different things. Um, but what do you, so now make, make your observations about this one. What do you see? It's hard to see, isn't it? Which I think is a part of the effect. It's so... The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove yes. is above the woman. Yep. I'm assuming that's the woman. Mm-hmm. And there are like little cherubs flying around yeah. all over there. So Tintoretto, in a lot of his, his biblical scenes, uh, gives you uh, a visual of the supernatural going on in the room. So his painting of the Last Supper, someday I'll show it to you another time, is, is incredible because you've got this really ordinary scene going on at a table in, in a building you know, quite like this. There's a, it's like a bar. And, but then in the, in the rafters is just this swirl of, you can faintly make out these, these sort of white radiant figures going you know, in the rafters and it gives you this juxtaposition of the heavenly and the earth, earthly you know, coming together just as it is here. I mean, they are swarming. The angels are swarming Mary right now. Yeah. Looks like it's in the basement. Yeah, it's not a very it's not a very nice setting, is it? I mean, it's featured is that pillar, that crumbling pillar, right? Just comparing Mary's body language and Yes. Here is the angel has entered and she's startled compared to the first one where, okay, now I kind of know what's going on. I'm prepared to accept. Right. Yeah. So 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 often. Um, the paintings are a bit more retrospective. So in light of what Mary says or what we know she says, we can, we can paint her that way. Here, this is that moment when whenever an angel shows up, you're scared out of your wits, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I think, okay, so it, you, can't, you can hardly see it. Joseph is there in, that, in the little gap Right here, this is Joseph. He's out, he's out doing some carpentry. With the wall and the brick and stuff, there's like destruction. Yeah. Sin. I, I think it's a wonderful portrayal of the fact that it wasn't, it wasn't this like pristine, heavenly setting. It was in the same world that you and I live in, you know, a world in decay. And, I mean, and even more, I mean, think about what life was like for Israel in terms of their expectations of the prophets and the coming of the Messiah. Um, the world was crumbling, right? There had been no... It's like in Samuel when um, uh, we hear before, before Samuel's born, the word of the Lord was, was sparse in those days, right? Same thing's going on here. Somebody else had a hand up. Yeah, Holly. Um, just directly under her canopy. Yeah, yeah. That makes me think of what we talked about. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. So you can see in you can see in the canopy, you can see the veil that goes over the um, the, el- the the chalice at uh, the Eucharist or the or the lid of the ciborium, right? And a bridal chamber, right? Uh, good, uh, Kathy. I'll just check it out. Okay, awesome. <laughs> oh, that cherubim, many cherubim, 
Yeah. Yeah. A company of heavenly host, right? Yeah. Now, this angel also has these really robust wings. Look at those wings. And, yeah. What is that thing right by, I don't know if Mary's foot is there, but it looks like a stringy pumpkin. I don't know what it is. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's a basket. Maybe. I, I think it's notable also that Mary is not, Mary's, Mary's features are not as um, soft or maidenly, right? Um, which I think is, also, is always a really helpful thing. Um, that it wasn't, it wasn't her, like, it wasn't her beauty that was the reason God chose her, right? It was her blessedness among women because uh, she was chosen. She's, she was afraid, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was afraid. Yeah. So dressed in red, normally she's dressed in some kind of linen. Right. And then, I don't know if there's a significance in this painting in terms of that or not, but we're so used to seeing her. Right. Well, so I suspect one thing you can imagine is, imagine if she was dressed in blue in this painting, how much more she would stand out of the context. So dressing her in red... She's, she's a part of it, right? She's got the same color on as those curtains above her, right? Okay, we've got we to gotta move on a bit. But uh, I, the last one, uh, this one is, I, I, send you, I give you this one. Um, this is from a, a painter who is a part of the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. I don't, I don't know entirely what that means, except that it, you, you have all of these sort of uh, fantastical um, renditions of, of figures, Okay, so it's like, it's like uh, in a dream in some ways, but really very realistic features and so forth. Um, so John William Waterhouse, I give you this one because I just uh, Jessica's uh, doctor, baby doctor, has this painting behind his desk, the reception desk in the office, which is just the coolest thing when you walk into a baby doctor's office and there's a picture of the Annunciation. Isn't that uh, so? And it's, I just think it's just an overwhelmingly beautiful painting, right? Um, that angel with the with the hair, like the angel just blew in, right? <laughs> but but coming with this greeting of these of these flowers, right? They're lilies. They're lilies, yeah. Okay. So now, so what does this have to do with consent? This might be this might be overwhelmingly obvious, but what do you what does this have to do with consent? Yeah, Mary's words to the angel. First, she asks a few questions, right? Let me, let me just pull this up here. The angel comes and says, Blessed are you among women. Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. She says, How will this be? The angel tells her. She says, Let it be to me. Behold, I am the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So it's, it is um, this archetypal um, picture of consent. And you can see directly in, in this context the relationship between consent and faith. Okay, So when she gives her consent, what does she believe? What does she believe? What she's she believes that what she... Okay, so she... That, that it will... That it will happen as it's been told to her. That, so that's absolutely... She, she believes the words that have been spoken to her. 
But she actually believes something more than that. What, what does she believe? Yes, that it will be her Savior, which you, you can generalize it a little bit. She believes that what, is, what she's consenting to will be good, right? That there's, she, there's no doubt in her mind that the one who's, who's requesting her consent has her good in mind, okay? And that's, what, that's the picture of faith, to um, believe that it will happen, what's been told to you, and that it's for your good. Now, this is, you can see how this plays out in your life as Christians because, I mean, Simeon says to Mary, what? A sword will pierce through your own soul, right? By all accounts, not a good thing to have to give birth to this child and then to lose him. There's a great, so Pastor Nelson showed you, talked to you about um, that film, Blade Runner, right? Same director, same director of that film directed the movie Arrival. Have you seen Arrival? Who's, what's the name of the, Amy... Amy, Amy Adams. Um, well, it's an older. It's a. It's about a year old, maybe two years old. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about it, and if hopefully I won't spoil the plot too much. Basically, uh, so the so the, this director is obviously very insightful, um, and one of the things. So the important part in 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 terms of consent and understanding Mary, Amy Adams, in the course of her work is basically able to see the future. She's able to see what's going to happen. And um, so she knows that she's going to have a child. This is just startlingly Marian. She knows she's going to have a child, but that the child is going to die, and that it's going to destroy her marriage, the death of her child. It's fascinating. She knows this, and as she's, as she's learning it throughout the course of the movie. Um, and then you get to the end of the movie, and her husband says to her, do you want to have a baby? She knows it. She knows that this is what's going to happen. And she says, yes. It's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Knowing that, knowing that even though the child is going to die, that the child is a blessing, right? That the child is for her good. That this is for her good. Um, same, thing, same thing that Mary experiences here. So now, uh, let's back up just a second. Um, so the conversations about consent that go on today, what do they look like? When, when people talk about consent, what, kinds of, what are we trying to, what, what's, what are we sorting out? What's the world sorting out? Yeah, right, rape versus consensual sex. Okay, good. And what's the, what's the question? If you're going to frame the question, what's the question that's trying to be answered? So take, so take um, any of these any of these fellows who you know Al Franken resigned yesterday. Um, what's the what's the problem that uh, needs to be solved, Nancy? When is it all right? Yeah. To make these advances. Yeah. Because it's really murky because I mean, you know one of these issues was slapping. Ladies, right. Men do all the time in baseball games. I mean, I just think there, there probably is a lot of confusion on the part of a lot of men. Yeah. acceptable. Yeah. And I think they don't realize how offensive they find some Absolutely. Right. Yeah, that's great. So, so and, and th- your question is exactly right. When is it okay 
to do a variety of things. When is it okay? Now, um, see if you can see if you can reframe that question in um, some more in crasser terms. Um, so, like, so, so imagine uh, you're, you have a, a kid who's asking you, "Is it okay if I, you know, do such and such?" What's the kid really asking? What's the kid trying to find out? Permission. Permission. Okay. What? I'm sorry. How much can I get away with? Okay. How much is how much is uh, permissible? What of what I want to do fits within the bounds of what's ethical? What's okay? Now, the, so what I want to show to you is that there's a difference between saying what is okay and when is it and what is good. Okay, so. When we ask ethical questions only in terms of, you know, basically, can I get away with this? Or um, have I not pushed it so far that, you know, there will be no consequences? Um, that's, a, that's a question under the law, okay? It's a legal question. Um, I'm considering only myself, and the question is, how much can I pursue my own gain before I've infringed on somebody else's good? Okay, you see that you see how that's a selfish question, a self-oriented question, which is the question that we ask uh, by nature under the law. We say um, we have we have minds that are oriented towards per, you know seeking permission to get away with as much as we can. It's just in our nature, um, and that's very different from the question of what is good, right? So uh, take a look now. Do um, you have any questions? Yeah, Krista. Because I think the society changed okay. in the last 10 or 20 years. Yes. You know, just um, as you see it in, in movies, right. there's no hesitant, there's no um, shame. That's so uh, there's such openness. And I think, um, where, is the, where is the holiness in this? Right. So, so, Krista, you know, you make a great observation that, that we see things morphing throughout time. So if you press that question, if you ask, what is okay? What can I get away with? The boundaries are going to move until there's a crisis. This is just the way it works. So the boundaries move until there's a crisis. And then what happens inevitably is that the world reorients itself um, and and pushes boundaries in a different direction. But notice, notice what never happens. The, the question never changes from, is this okay to, is this good, right? We're, the, the world is always pushing these boundaries. Well, you, ask, you just had this exact, Jim and I were having this exact conversation last night, and one of the things that we were talking about was how, you know, asking the question, is this good, our society would answer yes in a different context. So a guy who seduces a woman or seduces a woman becomes powerful, Everybody's like, oh, that's terrible. But a guy who's attractive and a woman, you know, sleeps with him, they're like, hey, good for you. Right. Yeah. Look at you, you're such a stud. Right. So it's like, it's not even, it's not even like, is you know, well, that's acceptable. It's like that's great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, actually, applauded when it's right. And. And that's because um, the, so goodness becomes attached to 
being able to get away with more than the previous guy, right? Or more than you used to be able to get away with. So there's, a, there's a, an inherent fault in deciding whether or not something is good based on sim simply the question of consent, whether or not it's okay with, if it's okay with both parties, right? Because if you say um, it's good because you, you know, some, some guy, you know, uh, got the girl that he wanted to, um, and, there's, you have, and you haven't said anything about love, then you really don't know anything about whether or not it's good, right? Um, we, we'll, let's, we'll work on this a little bit more. Um, but, but basically, uh, the problem that we face is that the question, um, which gets framed even as, is this good, right? It gets framed as, is this good, is not actually, the, it's not actually the right question, Okay. Marilyn. In the is it okay and is it good, it's all self-focused. Where's responsibility of thinking of this other person's feelings if I do that? Right. How will I feel about myself if I do that? Right. If I become the, the cad, the, the whatever, Right. there's no, it's all about me. Right. And that's the way we are. It's all about me, my satisfaction, Yes. rather considering the other person. Right. And that gets to the fact that it's a, it's a legal question. So, so think about it this way. If the question of whether or not something is okay is simply a, a question of consent, right? If we both agree that it's okay, then it's okay, then it's good. Um, then you, every decision you make is an economic decision. Am I going to get more out of this than I'm giving away? Now, the problem is, of course, as you, as you identified, you might in this moment feel like you're getting more out of it than you're giving away. But then, as we find out 25 years later, you in fact, weren't getting more out of it than you thought you were giving away. And, and, the, and so that, that is a, an unstable metric for goodness, right? It, and, and it's eminently selfish, as you said, right? Aaron. But that's actually, that's not even just um, the metric that we use to judge like a one-night stand. That's the metric we use to judge all relationships. Exactly. Yeah, right? <laughs> Romantic, yep. And then it's now it's shifted to, I mean, think of books like Eat, Pray, Love, or what, you know, all these books where it's all about self fulfillment. Yes. Like your relationship, you know, it's like any TV show you watch, they might break up, because, a couple might break up because it's like, you know, you're just not doing That's right. I need to focus on me. Yes. And I need to, you're not helping me become the person I want to be. It's like every, even the way that people think about like looking for a spouse, it's like, is this somebody that's going to help me become the best version of myself? Right. That's a, an icky question. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's shifted. It's shifted. So you had, you had a time when it was just simply practical questions. Um, and the, the point, one of the important points to make is that throughout the course of history, there are nonetheless, in spite of this fault of ours, good relationships, right? So even when, you know, a couple gets married so that she can help him farm, you know, that isn't, that isn't necessarily the wrong reason to get married. What, what mad, what, the question about marriage actually is not so much are we getting married for the right reason, but what are we going to do when, once we're married? You know, how are we going to think of ourselves once we're married? 
Um, the same thing goes for romantic love. Romance is a great reason to you find you're attracted to a person, but the question doesn't end at that point, right? The love has to enter the equation at some point. Um, take a look. Take a look at this uh, essay that you got at the back. Um, I, I was. I was. I just found this so interesting to. Um, Read this essay. This is a, a, an editor for the, for the Washington Post. And she is writing about the reaction of the world to the, to the problems that we're facing right now. So take, for instance, Roy Moore. She talks about this in the first paragraph there. She says, this is the predictable response. The allegation becomes public. The person is generally denounced. And then in the aftermath, the discussion moves from the specifics of the case to the general matter of consent and ethical sex, and people begin to express confusion because we find that it's it, it's murky water. And so here's what she here's what she uh, how she describes this. She says in that second paragraph, people will say consent seems very complicated, especially because genuine consent is governed by all kinds of operative power dynamics. So this is the this is the um, thing that we recognize more and more nowadays that sometimes yes might actually mean no because of power inequities, okay, so uh, that are submerged in some cases and explicit in others. And trying to figure out how to navigate consent in a society that is increasingly conscious of the power differentials born out of race, wealth, status, and gender, people sometimes come up with interesting calculi for hashing out when it's permissible to have sex. And she gives this quotation from um, somebody who's, who's remembering a conversation. It's fascinating to hear. It was around this time that I remember sitting in a casual gathering where a straight white male activist said, our gender and race has all the power. So when you want to have sex with a woman, you have to ask and get her verbal consent. He continued, if that woman is a person of color, she is oppressed by both her gender and her race, and then you should really ask twice. The literalism of his ratio was ridiculously reductive and his declarative tone off-putting, but I appreciated that he was trying to articulate how complicated it is to negotiate the invisible forces of privilege and power inside sexual encounters. He was trying to help other young men understand why it can sometimes be hard for any woman to find a voice, find and voice no within a culture that has taught her to mistrust herself or to value herself through male approval. So, it, so you, you, can, you can hear uh, contemporary culture trying to establish an ethic to answer the question, is it okay or is it not okay, and really struggling with it because there are too many variables. And Elizabeth Brunig points out, gives this example where even, wh- even when you might think it's obvious, it's in fact not obvious. So take a look at the paragraph that begins on the last page. She gives this example. It gets even more complicated than that. I'm going to use a couple of characters here. Let's call them Geetan, a man, and Trefena, a woman, to illustrate what I mean. Trefena loves Geetan very much and deeply wants him to love her back. Geetan does not love her, but he wouldn't mind having sex with her. Could she consent to him? Perhaps we would say yes, but their situation is very much like that of the employee or graduate student or professor. He has the power to actualize something she wants, which is his love for her, and he is using that as leverage to procure a diminished kind of consent. So now, so as soon as you say we have the, we have the potential to consent in a diminished way, things are exponentially more complicated, right? And now you can picture all these situations that play out even when sex is not involved, right? So you've got um, 
somebody who wants something from somebody else, they, they, each, each party wants something from the other, and they, so they mutually take advantage of one another. It happens all the time, right? Uh, but according to a, an ethic of consent, it's all okay. Uh, let's see. He has the power to actualize something she wants, which is his love for her, and he is using that as leverage to procure a diminished kind of consent. Trophena doesn't want to have sex with him. She wants him to love her, but she will trade the former in hopes of the latter. So again, expecting to get more out of this than she's giving away, right? Not unlike the more obvious cases above. This is a pretty common case in ordinary life, and we don't usually say it constitutes non-consensual sex. In fact, we would say, if they both say it's okay, it's okay. But you can see right away how if our, only, if our ethic is, consists, consists of simply everybody agrees, they're consenting adults, we've, we fall flat on our face. It doesn't, it doesn't solve the problems of taking advantage. Take a look then uh, a few, let's see, let's see, one, two, three, four, five paragraphs from the bottom. Six paragraphs. None of this is to say that it can't be sorted out. It can be. But I think the way to do it is to realize we're asking a couple of different questions disguised in one question, and that the matter of how to have ethical sex would be easier to figure out if we split the two questions up. So the first question, did the two parties consent? That is, did the parties consciously affirm agreement to have sex in this instance? All of the matters aside, an affirmative answer here is necessary, but not sufficient for ethical sex. The second question is, is the sex proposed good for the person who has rendered consent. I argue this ought to be necessary as well for ethical sex. So now you've, in, you've, you've inserted into the equation something that nobody is really considering, right? In terms of understanding whether or not Harvey Weinstein did anything wrong, the only question we're asking is, did he actually obtain consent? Nobody's saying, nobody's asking the question, did he consider the good of the other person, right? All that matters is the consent, Okay. Last paragraph. Some might say, how, well, how do I know what's good for someone? This is really revealing here. How do I know what's good for someone? This is the question that really stops the world from asking the question in the first place. How can I know, right? How can I know? I can only trust what somebody says about their consent. The answer is that you have to know something about them, their intentions and their context, and you have to use your reason and empathy and apply the golden rule. In sex, as in life, there is little mathematical certitude. But thinking carefully and at length about how your decisions will affect other people never leads to worse results, in my experience, than acting quickly or on impulse. So she says, in order to know what's good for somebody, you actually have to know the person, right? Um, And she writes this in a tone that is sort of like, uh, like she's discovering it, this this fact. She's actually a Catholic, writing um, in a, you know in a in a context that's really uh, has a lot of animosity towards what she know, she takes for granted, right? Eth- ethics regarding sex are obvious for Catholics, right? There's no there's no doubt that sex belongs in marriage. But she's sort of feigning ignorance here in some ways um, to introduce the notion that love might actually be an important component, right? That you can't actually answer the question of ethics, what's right and wrong, without considering the question of love. Um, and, you know, one, I was thinking about the ways that this goes wrong. So um, here's an extreme example to illustrate why 
consent only is not sufficient for deciding what's good or not. There's a, there's a famous story. You might remember this from the last, from the beginning of the, the early 2000s. There was a fellow in Germany who was finally discovered, you know, had been soliciting on the Internet for somebody to be a victim of his cannibalism. Right? It's, don't, don't, don't look this up, okay? It's, it's, it, it's horrific. Somebody consented, agreed. And the, the notion that that's all you need for something to be good, something to be okay, is two consenting parties, finds its fruition right there, right? There is nothing good about that. Nothing good for either person, right? The alternative, I think this is really um, an important thing to recognize too. So we, if you say, well, it's important for us to determine what's good based on whether or not we're going to be uh, whether or not you're consenting, whether or not you can actually give consent. Eventually, what results is, and we see this in all the discussions about, okay, so now, now that um, there's this great risk of accusations of sexual harassment, what's okay in the workplace? Can we actually relate to people in the workplace? Can we have any kind of um, a relationship? If consent is required for um, something to be good or okay, and you can't be sure about getting consent, what happens is distance is generated, right? People, in an effort to make, to assure that they're meeting the legal requirements, that they're being ethical, grow farther and farther apart. Uh, there's an, uh, I read a story about um, the case of lonely deaths in Japan. And this isn't really, this isn't really a manifestation of uh, an ethics of consent gone wrong, but I think it's a, you can see in it the natural conclusion of um, what happens when people grow farther and farther apart for fear of hurting one another, for fear of abusing consent, they grow farther and farther apart to the point where eventually you can't be around anybody because, because you might be violating ethics. Um, in Japan, they, they have these huge housing complexes that they were built, they were built in the 60s and during a time when the economy was booming and people lived there with their families and they... Um, grew old together, and families died, and now there are lonely, uh, lonely widows and widowers living in these housing complexes, massive housing complexes, so 1,500, 2,000 units. And there's this epidemic of folks dying, and nobody, nobody knows. So, in fact, I mean, one of the extreme cases was three, three years. Um, they discovered the guy had died when his automatic withdrawals from his bank account overdrafted his bank account finally three years later, right? So it's, um, but think about how that actually satisfies, that actually satisfies this ethic of consent, right? So if you are, if you separate yourself and have no ties to anybody, you can be sure that you're not ever actually violating anybody's consent. Um, and that's in some ways the, the alternative, the natural conclusion we reach on the other end, Okay. Neither of those is a very good situation um, because neither of them engages the question of what's good. Okay? What, what, what does love look like for this person? That's to flip the question from a negative question to a positive one. We see this in Martin Luther's explanation to the small catechism. So how does the explanation to you shall not murder go or you shall not kill? How does that go? Do you know? We should fear and love God so that we do not hurt, hurt or harm our neighbor but help and support him in every physical need, right? 
So there's two parts to it. Do no harm, do not hurt or harm, but also help and support. Do the good, right? Um, and that's what's, that, so that is to say that's what's missing from the conversations today. So now, so now back, back up with me to um, the relationship between consent and faith, okay? So think about what it means for Mary to say yes to, to God. Let it be to me according to your word. When she says that, she's not just a consenting adult. She's not just saying, I'm going to get more out of this than I'm giving away, right? She is trusting that what God is doing for her, to her, is out of love, right? And that is, that's the crucial thing in any relationship, right? So any relationship found, is founded on, you know, as, as Elizabeth Rennick said, requires consent, any kind of relationship. You have to agree to participate in one another's lives. But um, in order for it to be a real relationship, a godly relationship, um, you have to trust one another and trust that the good is what you're after, right? That, the, that, you, uh, that you love one another, that you're willing to be vulnerable and open to that love at the risk of not receiving it, right? So that's what, that's what we see um, manifested in Song of Songs. Although, do you have any questions? Because I'm just going to keep going. Yeah, Krista. So, I just was thinking, you know, at that time when um, Mary was um, realizing that she is um, having a baby, uh, how courageous she is. Yeah. At that time, oh, yeah. she could be stoned. That's right. Yeah. Which, which is, it's a manifestation even more of her faith, right? It's not that, just she, it's not that she's going to hide it and hope that it all works out. She trusts yeah. God that he's going to carry this through, yeah. right? And then she uh, feels protected. Yeah. You know, just something has to happen. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, she would die. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, all, and, and you think, so you get that picture of all these angels surrounding her, but then you also you have, um, not insignificantly, Joseph in her life, um, a, a gift to protect her. Yeah, Jan. I think when you look at those three pictures, probably the first one depicts the age of Mary at the time that this happened more closely than the other two, because she was a teenager. Yeah, right. (laughs) I mean, she wasn't a 25-year-old. She wasn't a 30-year-old. She was a teenager, probably an early teenager. Yeah. And that picture probably depicts her aura. Sure. At that time, the third one, to some extent, does, although that lady looks like she could be in her early 20s. Yeah. Um, the one in the middle picture looks like she could be 35. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that could be. That could be. But I think the other thing we need to remember Every woman, every Jewish woman looked forward to the 
serving of the Savior. Right. This, once the restoration, and they came back, and Israel kind of threw out all the idols and everything, and got down to the real idea of, yeah, God did say this, that was how the women were brought up. And I think we need to understand that. This isn't something that, yes, she would have been startled that she was chosen, but she would have also felt like, oh, God chose me. You get that sense also in Elizabeth's greeting to Mary, right? How is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me, right? So it's not, it's not uh, an ignorance of what's happening, right? Yeah. Yeah, good. Take a look. We're going to look at Song of Songs just for a bit here, and then I have a, a clip of uh, the TV show Taxi to show you. Um, okay, so, so let's relate to, to Song of Songs. I think that actually we get a really interesting vignette here in the first part of Song of Songs 5, which, which calls to mind what we read in Chapter 3. Remember, she's dreaming in Chapter 3. She thinks she wakes up and her beloved is not beside her and she goes looking for him. There's a, it's a different scenario here. Okay, Take a look at verse 2. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew and my locks with the drops of night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. So what's going on here that's different than before? He left. He, he did. He, yep, he left. He, although he left before, too. He, wasn't, he was actually, when she sought him, he was not there, right, in chapter 3. Okay? He's a little He's teasing her, if you will. Okay, so I'm going to side with him, though. It's not, so what, she's hesitant, right? Verse 3, I had put off my garment. How could I put it back on, right? I've, my feet are clean. I'm not going to soil them, right? So she delays. She hears his knock, and she hears his, uh, this wonderful litany of, <laughs> of titles, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Um, but she doesn't come right away. Okay. So, so okay. So, keep going. What else? What ha- what else happens then? It says violence against her. I'm sorry. It says violence against her. Right. Um, something from before. Um. No. No. She wasn't mistreated before. She wasn't. Nope. She just she she asked the watchman where she could find them, find him, and they, they, that was all we hear. She asked them. Okay, so, she's, so, so notice what happens when she goes. So she, she's missed her beloved. He, she delayed, and uh, now he's gone. 
Okay? When he was knocking, she didn't answer. And so what does she do? She goes out looking for him on her own, um, which is evidently a dangerous thing to do. Right? Um, and she suffers for it. Um, which is, you know, it's, it's for the people of Israel a pattern. I, th- I think about the story of uh, Saul when he inquires of the witch of Endor. Do you know this story? So Samuel's dead, and Saul had sinned as he, as he did over and over again. But he sinned in such a way that God's word was, God stopped his word. He stopped talking, stopped responding to Saul. Um, but Saul wanted to know whether he should go into battle. And finding God wasn't there anymore, he went looking for him on his own, right? And he went and inquired, asked the witch of Endor to summon Samuel from the, from the grave. And this figure appears, we don't know whether it was Samuel or not, but he basically says, why did you wake me up? Um, yeah, don't you know that you've, you know, you've sinned? Saul's appropriate response is penitence and to wait, to wait for God not to seek God on his own terms. Um, but this is what Israel does. Think about the golden calf, right? God is on, the, is on the mountain with Moses, giving him the Ten Commandments, and Israel says, he's dead. That guy, Moses, is dead. We're gonna, we'll just do this. on. Make for us, they say to Aaron, make for us uh, our God who brought us up. And they say of the golden calf, this is our God who brought us up out of Egypt, right? So on the one hand, it serves as this warning, right? And she, her words at the end, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him I am sick with love. Okay, so here that sickness with love is not a fun thing, right? She's sick with love because he's not there anymore. So it serves as this warning, but also it is an opportunity for us to be really grateful for the fact that God is so present with us, right? So um, we, are, we live in a time and in a place where... Um, when, after, when God knocks, he doesn't, he doesn't trot away, you know? We have his word always present with us. Luther talks about this in the small called articles. In just brilliant terms, he says, why do you suppose we have baptism and the sacrament and preaching and confession and absolution and the mutual consolation of the people of God? Why do we have all of those things? Because God wants to be with us so badly that he's here in all of these different ways so that we can always be sure that he's here. Because he wants to invite from us faith, trust in him, right? So you see, you see in, one, in one sense what happens when, when that consent is delayed, right? Um, there's a chance that he might go away, right? Um, so we should, we, should, we should seize that opportunity as we have it. Yes, Nancy. Yeah, I mean, that's great talking about it in the spiritual sense about God. Yes. But, I mean, maybe I'm just too was a real um, time the real world. And I read this and I think, okay, in the middle of the night, this guy comes to this lady's door. She didn't know he was coming. Right. <laughs> and then, so she finally gets up and goes to the door, and then he's gone. I mean, I just don't see this scenario as something that happens in real life and you could say is good. I mean, are they married? So, I, so you make an excellent point, and I think, in fact, that is part of the Part of the point is that it's not a realistic scenario. Okay? It invites a, uh, an interpretation that is spiritual. Because, well, yeah, when does this happen? Right? Um, 
we can interpolate a little bit. So say, for instance, Jesus says, you know, that day will come like a thief in the night, right? So we expect, we have this strange thing where we can expect God to come when we don't expect him to come, right? So, so had she been paying attention, perhaps she would have known that he might come at any moment. Also, her, what, what, is, what is it that wakes her? His knocking and his voice, right? Um, my sheep hear my voice, right? So you fill, in the bl- you fill in those blanks a little bit, and it invites this, this spiritual interpretation. But you're right. You're right. It's highly unrealistic. Um, and, and so uh, we have to work a little bit to put it to use. Yeah. Do you have any questions? I want to show you. So we watched a bit of the TV show Taxi lately, and um, there was this great scene. Um, I'm going to play for you. Let's see if I can find it. Um, so here's the reason to think about this. So I want you to, I want you to, we've, we've sort of covered the scope of um, the way consent is understood in the world, um, the notion that it's, uh, it, can, it can satisfy all the requirements of ethics, deciding what's right or wrong or good or okay. Um, the world thinks that, and the natural conclusions are, not, are, are horrible. Um, we know and understand that, the, that there's more to it, that love has to govern our relationships in order for them to be good, um, and that, uh, this is th- that then consenting to a relationship is actually believing that love is involved, right? Consenting is, uh, is faith, believing that your beloved is seeking your good. So I, w- I find this uh, little scene just sort of illuminating, um, because you see, so Elaine is a cab driver, um, she, and she, they're reminiscing about this great cab that John had wrecked, okay, so this cab 408, everybody had great memories in this cab, and she's remembering her memory, and the memory is the time she picked up uh, the, a character played by Burt Russell, okay, so she's just smitten with this guy who gets in, the, in her cab. Uh, Burt Reynolds, sorry. Kurt Russell, Burt Reynolds. <laughs> Some combination of the two. I don't know. Um, and so they get to the end. Of, so they, he asks her to drive him 140 miles. Um, and they have this great conversation. And she's taken with him. Um, but then they get to the end of the ride, and they have this conversation. Let's see, Mary, am I going to get sound? Okay, thank you for doing that. There we go. Okay. Um, so just, just think about, on the one hand, I think it's curious, as Krista said, things, think about how things have changed, right? So what this scene meet would mean if it was aired today. But also think about um, the, the way that, thank you, thank you, Nancy, um, the way that Elaine and the other fella are asking the question about what's good, what's okay, all right? No, come on, I want some sound now, too. Tom Selleck, is that who that is? <laughs> Shows what I know. <laughs> Doesn't he look like Burt Reynolds, though? No? Uh, that's terrible. Okay, so... This is clearly not working. Um, okay, I'll just read it to you. First of all, Elaine, of course, you know, is, is uh, this great... I'm so glad she's, she didn't go in, right? But think about the things that, a couple of things that he said. In the first place, um, I'm just struck by 
how he said, he asked her to spend the night, but he's un, he says about coming back, I don't want to make a promise I can't keep. Which, of course, is missing the big point that staying the night is making, making a promise of some sort, right? Um, but then also notice that you know John at the end there says, well, this is some sort of a great guy. He's, a, he's not a great guy, right? Not in the, not in the least. Um, because although, uh, you know, although he asks for her consent, right? So here he's a great guy because he's asking for her consent and acknowledging that she doesn't want, that she says, no, no, I can't. Um, he's at no point trying to decide what's good for her. At no point talking about love for her. The best he can offer her, a very sweet memory, right? Um, anyway, okay, so that's just more for curiosity than anything. But think about, think about these things. You got any questions? All right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, one more next week, and then I think we're off for till the new year.